So this is from a, a book uh, that I got from the Delaware Historical Society, uh, The Perennial Apprentice. Uh, it's a notebook of a pretty famous uh, Delaware architect, George Fletcher, Fletcher Bennett. Uh, but in the front of it, <coughs> there's a passage uh, written by this uh, Wilmington native and writer of the early 20th century, Christopher Ward. It's called The Land the First Settlers Found. And it's not the beginning, but it's a beginning. And so I found this very interesting. Except where it was cut through by little rivers, and where some marsh or morass lay open, where the Indians had cleared their little fields, the land that is now the state of Delaware was, in 1638, covered by a primeval forest, a forest that had never known an axe. The deep, blue, the deep black soil, enriched by rotted leaves that had fallen year after year for thousands of years, bore mighty oaks rising 60 or 80 feet before a single limb thrust itself from their rude columns. Towering tulip trees reared their smooth trunks to great heights, huge beeches with slivered boles, rough bark wall, uh, chestnuts, walnuts, hickories, maples, buttonwoods, and ash trees strove with each other for space to spread their branches. Pines, straight and slim, stood close-ranked like masts in a forest of ships. Cypress grew thick in the swamps, and willows lined the streams. Among the greater trees, the lesser, sassafras, dogwood, hornbeam, holly, alder, and a multitude of shrubs elbowed each other, and everywhere spreading over the lower trees, climbing among the branches of the loftiest grape vials flung in a tangled network. Huge tree trunks, fallen through age or overthrown by storms, lay here and there. Bogs formed by clogged streams or in naturally undrained spaces grew rank with reeds and marsh plants. Only by the few Indian trails was such a forest penetrable without vast difficulty and real danger. Every kind of vegetable life that flourished in a temperate and humid climate grew in this fertile soil in profusion. Wild fruits, mulberries, cherries, plums, blackberries, raspberries, strawberries, and grapes abounded. Medicinal plants and herbs, specifics for many ailments, flourished in the woods and marshes. Wild animal life was more varied and abundant than anywhere on this continent today. Beasts of prey, bear, wolves, panthers, wildcats infested the forest. Elk and deer roamed through it. Foxes, raccoons, possums, minks, weasels, skunks, rabbits, and squirrels were there in multitudes. Beavers, fishers, otters, and muskrats haunted the ponds and streams. There were birds of prey, too, eagles, hawks, and kites, owls, buzzards, and crows. Game birds were plentiful, turkeys of great size, partridges, pheasants, quail, woodcock, and snipe, swan, geese, and ducks. Songbirds filled the air with their melody. While pigeons were so numerous, flying in vast flocks, they darkened the sun as to clouds. The river yielded fish in inexhaustible plenty. Halibut, mackerel, rock, bass, pike, trout, perch, catfish, and eels were abundant. Herrings swarmed in incredible numbers. Down where the bay met the ocean, the sportive porpoise leaped from the waves, and the jovial whale wallowed in the deeper waters. On the shores, the suspicious crab scuttled sideways over the sands while the cautious clam and saturnine oyster reposed in their beds. In the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, in the belly of the Delaware Way Beast, uh, Rob here in Bunker Studio, 
With us as always, Super Producer Carl on the knobs, levels, and switches. And uh, I'm very uh, happy to uh, introduce our guest uh, tonight. Uh, Sil Wolford is a historian. He's a native Delawarean, uh, and his research uh, that we've uh, that we've I've seen in the last month or so is, is very, very um, not only important but uh, very relevant to a task we're starting to undertake uh, at the podcast and the call. We'll talk more about that as we go on. Um, but still, uh, Wolford, uh, thank you so much for coming in. Good to be here. Glad to meet you. I'm very glad to meet you. As a matter of fact, um, we've been we've we've embarked on a sort of a, a little side project that's really going to focus on Delaware history, but the kind of history that we tell when we when we talk to people like Harvey J.K. Or, or, or Steve Paxton, and we just talk about sort of history from below and regular people's stories. And as we started to talk to people who were going to help us in this, Professor Dale Norwood at the University of Delaware, uh, Ivan Henderson at the Delaware Historical Society at the Mitchell Center, everybody was like, Sil, have you talked to Sil? Have you, do you know? You got, I mean, you got to talk to this guy. <clears throat> So, so I, th- I'm, I can tell you that they know you were coming in, they wanted to say hello, and I, I'm just very happy that you were able to take the time to do this. Again, glad to be here, and again, again, the gentlemen that you mentioned obviously have incredible credentials in terms of Delaware history and preserving Delaware history, so um, I, I am glad that they appreciate what I do and what I bring to the table, uh, and hopefully this evening we can again talk about you know my contribution to Delaware history and 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 the research that I I have done. I am truly a a uh, call it a basic researcher. I have no books. I, again, it 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 sounds strange and probably will people will probably turn off your broadcast. But I only have five books in my house, and but I feel at home because you guys are like. Way left, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you asked a, you sort of when when just just as a little aside for people because before we turned on the mics, I was so happy to meet Sil and, and we started talking and of course he started asking me sort of what sort of what my politics were for lack of a better thing and so I, I just said what they were and you didn't do anything but kind of chuckle a few times so yeah. I, I just I'm I, I'm glad to hear that we're we're sort of a, a little bit simpatico on that. Again, I have. I was would say I had burned all my books, but I never bought any. But I, 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 my career was in accounting, and and I got involved in genealogy and research because the city of Newark did history of Newark two hundred fifty years and the history of Newark, and left my family out of it, and and I felt insulted that what about me? How come I'm not in the book? Yeah, so that's really how it started. I mean, we 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 ask people uh, of note from Delaware, especially like where they grew up, what it was like, and and how they sort of got to do the thing that we're talking about. Um, so you were a Delaware native, but not only that, your family your family's been in Delaware, uh, I, I guess from from a colonial period or at least very close to after that. Uh, two hundred twelve years. Two hundred twelve years, which is seven generations. Yeah, okay. that and, and that's we, just Newark area. That that's I mean, we only moved five miles in in uh, you know two hundred twelve years. So you so you're you're work, just working a professional job in Newark. Um, you're into genealogy, so you knew your family history. Uh, wasn't even into genealogy. Just went out and bought a book for seventy five dollars. Looked for my family. It wasn't there. 
went and found the guys who wrote the book and says, where's my family? Where's my grandmother? How come my grandmother isn't in the book? And they said, well, you go out and do the research and, and, and we'll nail you to the wall someplace. So I walked out of there still fuming and said, what do I do? And again, to you, the word genealogy sounds simple, but I didn't even, couldn't even spell genealogy at the time. I had to <laughs> figure out where to go from there. And I went down to the Delaware Public Archives, which is where the genealogists go. And I said, hey, I'm looking for my family. And it literally, it took me three years to work my way through Delaware Public Archives, Ancestry.com, wills, land deeds, all those kinds of things. Yeah, that's 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 amazing. I'll, just as a brief aside, I'm working with a, a student who's writing a story for the call, sort of tied into some of the history that we're doing, about a black farmer um, whose family was deeded the land from Quakers in like 1890, I think. And uh, we found uh, on, online from the Kent uh, Recorder of Deeds, we found the original deed uh, yesterday. And so it's like the first time I actually found a document like that. Yeah. And so, and so I, I'm sort of like, I'm at the, I'm doing the baby thing that you started to do. Mm -hmm. right? That's where I'm at. Sure. But yeah, but I, and I also like, if, if you'll allow me to put it in words that my audience understand, I very much appreciate that you embarked on this endeavor mostly out of spite. I like that <laughs> because that means you're sure. That means you're going to, you're going to like this. You have Absolutely. your project. You're, you're burning to do your project Pure. because you've, you were, you, you were snubbed. Sure. Absolutely. And, and, and again, as, as you're saying, when you're working out of passion, no one can stop you because you're, you're not looking for a paycheck. You're not looking for anybody to support you. You're not looking for accolades. There's no applause. You just keep going. Yeah, that's it. I was mentioning before about like seeing what podcast episodes get the most hits. Like I, I like doing them. They're fun, but I'm not that interested in it. Cause it like, I have a I'm on a different project, mm -hmm. so I, I I can feel that for yeah. sure. So talk a little bit about that method. So it is very interesting. That was what what Dale said too. Is you're just the documents guy, the newspapers, the public records. That's your that's what you first dove into, and that's where you were able to start piecing all of the stuff together and figuring out sort of all of these stories together. Mm -hmm. And 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 again, they just kind of uh, like breadcrumbs crumbs kind of led me along, meaning that when I got started uh, 10, 12 years ago, we were at the beginning of the sesquicentennial of the Civil War, and the sesquicentennial of the Civil War is the 150-year anniversary. So uh, as we're sitting here today, I'm sitting here, and, and, and at, if it were 12 years ago, you would ask me the question, were there any black folks in the U Union Army? And I would say, I don't know. And, and it's a case again of motivation. Well, why am I, why did I not get educated? <laughs> okay. As to whether black folks did or didn't serve in the union army during the civil war. So again, I got to go out and, and, and find out, well, did they fight in the civil war? Um, the, the first two years of, of the Civil War, Lincoln didn't want any black folks in the Union Army because he was going to, um, you know, make make slavery permanent if the Confederate slaves came back into the Union. He, he was willing to sacrifice slavery or sacrifice me or sacrifice my ancestors just to keep the Union together. 
Uh, and after the Battle of Gettysburg, again, they decided that, hey, we have to kill them all, which is strange, which is what other folks have done in other wars. And so uh, they said every body who's breathing and blood running in them, you're in the army and we're in this thing till the last man dies. And it took 700,000 folks to die for them to say, hey, I think I'll give up. I had enough. I'll give up. Yeah, not only did, you know, not only is all of that not taught to you, um, there's a specific Delaware connection to that. I was reading, um, I don't know if you if you've read uh, Yehuru Williams is an academic who's written for the Delaware Historical Society, and he's cataloged all the known um, lynchings in Delaware. So you might have seen this so his work. Um, there was a uh, an African American uh, Union vet came back in '65 or '66. There was some issue with his pay; he wasn't getting his pay, and some of it went to the dentist who's who's place he took he was from uh, duck creek crossroads smyrna and um so he had to take like odd jobs farm jobs while he's waiting to get his pay and so he signs a contract to work on like a peach farm in lipsick and uh and he uh you know he finds out that he's going to get his pay i think his name is evans i i, I have to look it up uh, but there's a dispute because he signed the contract at the end of the season, but now he's going to get his back pay, and he was he was lynched uh, on Collins Farm in, uh, I think it was in Leipzig. But again, people don't know this stuff. Not only not only did, not only did was there a, a, a black man who fought in the Civil War, there was one from, from Delaware. Mm. And actually one of the few who, a lot of them didn't see any combat. I believe he saw a little bit of combat at the end. And uh, yeah, we don't, this, these are stories like we don't tell. <laughs> Nobody knows this. Actually, there were a thousand colored troops, U.S. colored troops, yeah. is what from Delaware who uh, served in, in 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 the Civil War. Yeah. Uh, and there's another guy putting a list together, and he's got the list up to actually thirteen, fourteen hundred, where some of them, some folks who weren't born here, um, you know, retired here or or, or or moved here, and he's got this in, incredible list. Um, and again, it makes you a part of history. Uh, to say, hey, in, in in my particular case, did my ancestors fight in the uh, in the Civil War or War of eighteen twelve? You know, you work your way through history and say, what wars did they fight in? Yeah. I um, was drawn to your presentations too, because how this how all of this research sort of synthesizes for you is in these talks that you give publicly at libraries and events. So I was able to watch a bunch of. And the thing that struck me is I mentioned that we're sort of embarking on this history project. And what I'd like to do is use our podcast platform to tell some of those stories because we can cut in, you know, quotes from you explaining something. We can we can cut in um, sort of brief discussion, open discussions. We can cut in, you know, prepared uh, script. We can make music for it. We can put sound effects to it. And but but basically what you're doing is exactly that. I mean, it was I want to focus on the uh, the the Sons of Sussex County presentation that you did, um, because you you talk about two men uh, from Sussex County um, who led uh, pretty incredible lives that I had never heard of. Um, They were uh, Jabez Pitt Campbell and Samuel Eli Cornish. 
how did you how did you come across um, these men? Realize they were from Delaware, and then able to track sort of their lives and what they what they did. It kind of worked in reverse order as as we go. Meaning, I found these guys, and they were from Delaware, and so I said, "Well, who were these guys?" And so you work back and you say, "Well, Samuel Eli Cornish. Where? What does it say in Wikipedia? Even we we get a brief history in Wikipedia. It says he was born in Sussex County, and it doesn't say any more than that. And then you get into Delaware history, or you get into strange history, because uh, Samuel Eli Cornish was born in 1795. Uh, we are right after the Revolutionary War." Uh, and, and again, when you get down there to Lewis, which is where he was, and Lewis is a port city, we see the Europeans come over here and set up the Lewis settlement or the Lewis town. And, and then you say, well, where did they get their wives? Well, they married the Indians. And then they brought over the slaves. And you say, where did the slaves get their wives? Well, they married the Indians. If you go down to Lewis now, you will find white Cornishes, you will find Indian Cornishes, and you will find Black Cornishes, which shows you how the the world was working in Lewis around, you know, the late 1700s. Yeah, Samuel himself was mixed race. Absolutely. And I think the way, the 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 story about the, the Presbyterian Church there is very interesting because, because you had this sort of mix of people in this fishing village. Um, the... The rules say at church were actually pretty mixed. Mm-hmm. It was like, hey, you can come and stand. Just like there's no, there wasn't the rigidity you would see elsewhere because that's just the way this village sort of was, I guess. Well, you could sit on the back bench. I mean, it was yeah. they, <laughs> they wanted to introduce everybody to Jesus Christ and tell you you shouldn't sin. So they wanted you to come in and they said, you can sit on. Uh, on the back beds. But what is amazing, though, is is they kept records of um, of the mixed race or mulattoes or blacks, even or Indians uh, who were on the black back bench and and their marriage licenses and 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 births were recorded in the church records. Uh, so you have and again, this is back to genealogy. You've got this incredible church record saying that, you know, Samuel Cornish and Mary Cornish were married in 1750 in the church. Um, And again, it gets into what happened later on in Samuel Cornish's life. Uh, When when we speak of African-Americans primarily, we say, hey, they're either Methodists or Baptists. We we know, okay, but but the Cornish was a Presbyterian. And the reason why it was a Presbyterian is, is Cool Springs Presbyterian Church down in Lewis and again, a, a church that goes back to the early 1700s. This, is, again, is incredible um, piece of history. When he got to uh, New York, he started the first Presbyterian church. And again, we try to find out how this history works, and it, it doesn't work in a straight line, <laughs> okay? And, and then you find out, you know, this guy was mixed race, mi- literally mixed with everything, white, Indian, black, and, and then he was a Presbyterian and again, as we get into his his uh, history, he started the Af- first African American church. Uh, uh, sorry, the first African American newspaper uh, in uh, New York City, uh, Freedom's Journal. Yeah, I have that written down because uh, you know I mentioned the, one of our other projects is the Delaware Call, um, sort of this online uh, magazine periodical, I guess. Um, but 
starting that Freedom's Journal, and the one thing that you sort of go into in detail that they document uh, is uh, basically the putting down of a protest, really, uh, in Ohio. And I, I'm, I'm very much into these ideas where um, some rebellions were put down, where coups were done, even uh, during Reconstruction in other states. Um, but this particular one in Cincinnati would not have would, would have most likely been lost to history had it not been covered in 1829 by um, the Freedom Journal. You want to sort of tell, talk about what that was and how um, it was covered? Well, let me go back to the cleansing of history. And, and, and the, the cleansing of history is, and again, we are in this debate now, we don't want white people to feel bad about themselves. We don't want them to feel bad about what they did to black folks. So we have to clean up the history, and in cleaning up the history, we talk about Harriet Tubman, okay? Harriet Tubman was a slave. She escaped from slavery. A white man by the name of Thomas Garrett, when she came to, the new, uh, came to Wilmington, helped her, and then she made several trips back, and this white man, Thomas Garrett, helped her. There was another white man by the name of Hun, who was from uh, Kent County, who helped, and they went on trial, and they sacrificed and gave up their money, and 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 for the for the liberation or freedom of of black folks. That's a great story, <laughs> okay. And it makes white folks feel good about themselves, okay. Uh, what actually was happening is, and and that's an underground railroad story. What actually was happening is slaves were running away. You say, well, running, they must have had a map or a guide or uh, there must have been a Harriet Tubman. So, no, they were running away, <laughs> okay, for, for their lives. Dogs were chasing them. Slave masters were chasing them. They were being, they, they, they were, uh, again, if they were caught, they were either being whipped or lynched. They were running away. If you look at a map, okay, you can see the mighty Mississippi, okay, and we know that most of the slaves during, you know, the the early to mid 1800s were in Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Georgia. So uh, you say, well, the slaves must have put a plan together. Got no plan, just run, okay. When when you get to some 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 place where the dogs aren't chasing you and nobody's shooting at you then you must be free. Well, they were settling in the first free states, which were Illinois. If they come up the Mississippi, they, they end up in southern Illinois, or they end up in southern Ohio. And Cincinnati is that, you know, first city. It's, it's on the Ohio River. The Ohio, again, comes into the Mississippi. So, um, again, it, it's a case of... of this is not a logical plan organized event the folks were running for their lives and ohio was the first place that 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 they got where no one was trying to kill them uh but the folks in ohio said look we don't really want you here so we're going to come up with these black codes is what they were uh and the black codes were um almost like slavery <laughs> okay first of all you owe us fifty dollars for being here every year now you just ran away from slavery i don't know where the fifty dollars comes from nobody can give you a job 
If somebody gives you a job, they're fined $50. You can't buy land. You can't have a gun. Uh, you can't uh, build a house. You can't vote. Uh, and, you know, it went on and on from there. But these folks, again, were run away from slavery. So, you know, this was, I don't want to say it was better than slavery, but, but it was a place to go. In 1829, there were 2,000 blacks who had settled in Cincinnati. And this was also taking place in southern Illinois. Alton, Illinois and East St. Louis, Illinois were the same thing. Um, and so um, one day the mayor or the city council of, of uh, Cincinnati said, hey, we're going to enforce this law. You either owe us 50 bucks or you got to be out of here by sundown tomorrow. Of the 2,000, 1,400 of them left which left 600 there. They said, we ain't moving or we can't move or whatever. And um, the uh, police, the, the, the government went down and routed them uh, and, and just, you know, beat them and beat them into Canada. And again, it was, it was you know, a riot, a massacre, um, you know, inhumane. And, and again, as you said, if, you know, Freedom's Journal hadn't picked that up as, as something of great concern to the African-American community because there, there were several of these cities along, along the, the way. In, in, on the other side, in, in Illinois, um, uh, slaves, uh, the story is that there was a city above Alton, Illinois called Brooklyn, Illinois. Uh, and it was, the first mayor was uh, Mother Baltimore. We name all these places after the city. She herself had paid her way out of slavery. And she was buying slaves from Missouri and bringing them to um, Brooklyn. And then after a while, she just started stealing slaves away. Uh, Brooklyn, Illinois became the first incorporated African-American-run city in the United States. You know, all from these runaway slaves and free slaves. Uh, and again, we don't, you know, we, we miss these stories. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's, again, it resonated with me so much because we're looking at the, the Delaware history about this around the same time. And it's very similar with the black codes. So yeah, we had more manumission say, or, or the percentage of, of quote unquote free blacks was going up in the beginning of the 19th century. However, the, 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 the bureaucratic state made life absolutely unlivable. Um, there was indentured servitude. There was travel restrictions, um, you know, the different sorts of taxes, as you said. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you, you're, your life between being a, a slave and a free person was not, it was tenuous, violent, and scary, no matter, no matter what. And, and, it, and it resonated, we did it here. And to your point, I think people just are, are very, very they're not eager to reckon with stuff like that at all and so we're just we're going to force feed it to them i think sure i think that's what we have to do now absolutely. i think we've waited long enough absolutely um but i also want to get to jabez pitt campbell sure um but you know the way you frame this i i i i, I thought it was so important um because you actually say in the in this particular talk that some people would believe that these aren't, quote, significant figures. 
And um, I thought that that was like the perfect way to put it. He said, but that's just not really, doesn't really matter. Uh, you know, our friend Harvey J.K. studied the, the British Marxist historians and would be around and people would say, well, when did this, who was the king when this happened? Or what was the Duke's horse, horse like or whatever? Who gives a shit? I don't care. The, the, it's the mass of people who are, these people are reacting to. You know, the political machinations and the religious things that are happening, that's what's driving history to how we got here. So I don't really, like, I, I can't really care about Caesar Rodney anymore. I don't think it's important. And um, I, I think the way that you framed all of this was, was extremely interesting. But so we have, uh, so Jabez Pitt Campbell was uh, born a little bit after Cornish, um, down in the, in the same sort of area, um, and lived a, a very different uh, early life. Um, and speaking of like, speaking of being caught up in sort of bureaucratic uh, ridiculousness and absurdity, like Kafka-esque stuff. He was actually born free under very sort of bizarre circumstances and then wound up going back into slavery under even more bizarre circumstances. You want to talk about that a little bit? Let's talk about these bizarre uh, uh, circumstances. Um, His mother and father live the life of of slaves. Uh, And when I say the life of slaves, uh, women weren't, expected to work that much they were expected to breed that much the the slave owner wanted them to breed i need more slaves yeah i believe the 1790 census showed that caesar rodney of all of his vast slave holdings had two breeder slaves so you know i don't know where that statue is but they can throw it in the fucking river for all i care but anyway <laughs> continue please i'm sorry so, sometimes i sometimes i i, I get that peak so uh Jabez pitts campbell mother and father had uh, 12 babies and and uh, the slave owner um, in compassion I shall say said eh, that's enough and and so he freed her and when he freed her they decided to have another baby the 13th baby okay and that was Jabez Pitts Campbell and he was free because his mother was free if his mother usually again they freed the man and kept the woman as a slave because her babies would always be slaves but now that she was free and now that she had this 13th baby, Jabez Pitts Campbell was also free. Uh, his father needed a job or an occupation and decided he wouldn't be a sailor. And so he went to this guy and he said, you know, I need a boat. And the guy said, okay, uh, you know, pay me, you know, $2 a month or whatever the going rate was. And he, he took the boat and, and the boat sank. It was not very well done. But the guy still was asking for his money. You, you wanted a boat. You saw the boat. Buyer beware. I want my $2 every month. And so his father, again, had no way of paying him back the money. So he sold his son, Jabez Pitt Campbell, into slavery for four or five years to pay back this debt. Um, so Jabez Pitt Campbell, although he was born free, ended up in a slave agreement, indentured servant agreement, whatever. He had to serve out five years of indentured servitude. Yeah, that was another thing people should start reckoning with is how awful um, all that stuff in Delaware was. I I was not surprised when I heard the story because my understanding is about 35 was the age where, you know, this person isn't productive, but if, if if you freed them after 35... 
and they needed sort of like state support in some fashion that was on you. So that was all these kind of rules when you would free sort of unproductive quote unquote people. Um, but it's, it's real sick stuff. And, uh, and people need to like kind of gr- sort of start to uh, digest it. I think that's part of the, the first part of the solution is that I mm-hmm. think, um, but there's, there's two um, sort of very interesting details of Pitt Campbell's life that I wanted to touch on. Uh, one was uh, he became uh, an AME bishop, uh, and in 1854, he became the editor of the AME newspaper, the Christian Record. Again, another another sort of somebody who's thinking we got to get the word out. We need some sort of means of communication, just like sort of just like Cornish did. Um, so, I mean, you could talk about that. There's a lot of interesting information there, but also um, there's a thing that we don't that, that we don't get taught a lot about the ACS movement, which uh, which Pitt Campbell was part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sort of the, the recolonization of Liberia, mm-hmm. um, because you weren't going to get a fair shake here. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know if you want to pick one of those to sort of like uh, elaborate on or just talk about, uh, or both if you if you'd like. I, I just I find that his his life intersects both of those very interesting uh, dynamics uh, in you know in, in the Middle Atlantic at this time. Um, let me segue into these things. Um, some of the articles that I did not put in my presentation from Freedom's Journal discussed going to back to Africa. And, and um, Samuel Eli Cornish actually had a partner by the name of uh, John uh, Rushman. Okay, so they were co-editors. And one of the reasons why the paper shut down is, is, is Rushman said, I'm going back to Africa. I'm going back to Liberia. And during this period of time, and we're talking 1827, 1829, again, as you just described, all these black codes, I, I mean, it was punitive to, to be, regardless of whether you were slave or freed, really wasn't a place to be. I mean, you were at risk of all kinds of things. You, you were at risk of slave catchers catching a free man and selling him into slavery anyhow. So even if you were free, you always had this thing over your head that, you know, you could go out one night and be caught and sold into slavery. So uh, Rushman went back to Africa. And and uh, I don't know whether you saw my last presentation, but he actually wrote a letter back telling how great things were in Liberia. And over the years, the, the uh, letters that came back from Liberia were... were where no one would believe them. They talk about Monrovia, which is named after, again, President Monroe, that Monrovia was a major city like any European city. So Monrovia was like Paris and London and Rome. And, I mean, no one would believe that in 1830, 1840. But they were trying to get black, they were trying to encourage blacks to go back and and they say you guys are over here. Ninety percent of you are still in slavery, and the ones who are free still again can only survive on menial subsistence. So come over here to Liberia. Um, um, Russia again has this incredible story also that he settled in the tip of Liberia, which was uh, the Maryland. Um, county like the county of maryland is what it was called and in this back to africa movement american colonization society movement 
Maryland was the only state that had a line item in the budget that said ships going back to Liberia. We're going to pay for ships to ship black folks out of here. Okay. And most of the black folks who went back to Africa between 1830 and 1840 left from the port of Baltimore. So if you were in Virginia, your slave owner or yourself would pay passage to Liberia. Uh, Russia got into a fight with the Liberian government and the county of Liberia was uh, annexed and turned into the Republic of Maryland. Uh, an incredible story where they created a whole new country because they were uh, having trouble. Um, it, it later again went back into Liberia, became li li um, part of Liberia. But this American Colonization Society started about 1823 with um, Henry Clay um, and Francis Scott Key, the Francis Scott Key, who wrote the Star Spangled Banner. He was also a member of the American Colonization Society. That scans. <laughs> okay. Um, and they literally went around to all of the free black communities and said, you're never going to vote here. You're never going to be part of, uh, of uh, the society here. Uh, you're never going to get any respect. If you go back to Liberia, you will have this incredible connection between the United States and yourself, and you can become trading partners. You can grow sugar and cotton and tobacco and, and, and um, all kinds of things. You can be great exporters of these products and you can develop a prosperous nation and you can govern yourself and so this there was this incredible story to entice black folks to go back to africa delaware as an example during this period of time which is uh pre-civil war and after the civil war one-third of the population were african-americans which was again from the perspective we were too many black folks to have democracy. And you say, what, what do you mean too many people to have democracy? Well, if it's one man, one vote, then black folks got one-third of the vote, and we can't, again, deal with that. Yeah, I mean, the underlying thing here, especially in Delaware, that people need to sort of come to terms with is there, you know, there were a lot of slaves, but there were also the, the fact that the population of, quote, free blacks and freemen was got was increasing over the beginning of the 19th century made the black codes even harsher made the rules even more uh diabolical and dangerous and so that's the trick right is is actually the the and you sort of mentioned it before is that where where there were more free africans the the push was uh, it's we're going to make it so bad here that you're going to want to leave. That's that was really. I, I mean, that's the underlying feeling I get with Delaware and across, uh, you know, the Mid Atlantic states and Maryland being the biggest one. But yeah, I mean, that's the that's the underlying. Sure. Sort of, that's what's that's the underlying politics at play. But let, let's go back to uh, Bishop uh, uh, Jabez Pitts Campbell. You would think, because Frederick Douglass said we ain't going back to Africa. You would think that a bishop of the AME denomination would say, we're not going back to Africa. But Pitts was with the American Colonization Society. He was saying, hey, let's go back. It, it sounds like a good idea. So you had this conflict 
within the black population of are we going to stay here or not go here? And then you get into some church politics where the AME church says, hey, we can control all of Africa. We can have AME churches all over Africa. So even if only a few go back, we can, you know, you know, spread Methodism, our own African Methodism throughout Africa. So sounded like a great deal to many of the Africa AME bishops that, you know, they, they were going to conquer the world. Uh, but again, it created a conflict here as to whether the free blacks were going to try to, you know, chip away at these black codes. And, and uh, uh, again, it was painful. You also, again, I'm, since you saw my presentation, um, you, you again, some of these black codes or one of the black codes was a Jim Crow car. And so um, uh, black folks had to ride in a Jim Crow car. And Jim Crow car doesn't really explain it. It was a smoking car. Okay. So there was the ladies car and there was a smoking car. And so in a smoking car, folks were spitting tobacco, which, you know, we don't do anymore. We don't do much smoking either, but, but this was spitting tobacco, which was like all over the floor. Okay. And then there were smokers and then there were drinkers and then there were curses. <laughs> okay. And normally again, the Jim Crow car didn't even have any heat, but if you're smoking and drinking and spitting, you know, you don't need any heat. heat. Uh, but Jabez, uh, um, Pitts Campbell was up in the Rhode Island area and coming back to Philadelphia. Uh, and he went in and bought a ticket. And he said, does this ticket allow me to sit any place on a car that I want to sit? And the guy who sold him a ticket said, you can sit any place. And he got on the train and sat any place. He sat in the warm car, the ladies' car, the non-smoking car. Uh, and the conductor again said, sir, you're going to have to go back in the back with the rest of the colored people. And he said, why? Now we get into, in terms of, uh, we wonder why no one protested. We, it's back to when these Jim Crow cars and these, you know, if you leave the state, you can't come back. You can't have a gun. Did anybody protest this stuff? Well, this day, um, Bishop um, um, Jabez Pitt Campbell decided to protest. He said, unless you tell me why, I have to go back to the other car. I ain't moving. They beat him up. Again, in the article, which he was the one who actually wrote, he yeah, said... he wrote a long letter to the editor that explained, you know, in a, in a very uh, articulate fashion, exactly what happened to him. It's, it's very harrowing. Yeah. He said, they beat me so bad, I didn't care whether I lived or died. Yeah. Uh, and again, these were the things that blacks uh, expose themselves to just being in the society, you didn't know what you were going to run into or who you were going to uh, run into. Yeah, there was there was a story. Uh, we had uh, a historian. Um, she's the, the chair of the department, Allison Parker, at the University of Delaware Inn, to talk about her. She wrote a biography of Mary Church Terrell a little later in the 19th century. Um, she had, uh, Terrell, had an incident on a train in Dover. Um, obviously didn't get beat up. It's a little bit later 
So it was it was in re during Reconstruction, I think. Um, it might have been sort of Gilded Age Reconstruction time. Mm -hmm. And uh, and yeah, she had a problem on a Dover platform about somebody just questioning why she was there, not going to let her get on the train. Had a big blow up. Um, but yeah, just every day that every day, uh, just oppression every day. No matter what you do, you can't get on a train. You can't do. You can't do anything. Um, but yeah, that was a. It was a, the fact that he was able to recount the story in the way that he did um, was actually yeah. Really, it was it was pretty heavy. It was an interesting part. And again, this goes back to sort of your <coughs> your method, right? Like you're giving a talk, just like sort of an, uh, an academic talk, but you have the um, you have the, you've done the research and the scholarship necessary to tell the, the the most poignant stories through the through the narrative. You know, you created you cr you're, you're creating a narrative. The kids love a narrative. Sure, that's what they want. You have broken the code. Okay, when when I decided I was going to speak at public libraries, I decided I should be talking about something that no one ever heard about that should excite people that should develop their interest. I started my research that way. When, when I was researching uh, Ida B. Wells as an example, I would go to the, New, to the University of Delaware Library and I'd come up with 400 articles from newspapers all over the country covering her entire life, okay? And I said, what is gonna get the most response? What is gonna say nobody, uh, you know, nobody uh, heard this before? What's gonna, again, excite people? Uh, and so those were the things I pulled out of the resource research and brought into my presentation. Uh, and again, it, and again, some of these are, you know, uh, Jabez Pitts Campbell being beaten up. I, I, and, and again, I think I told you I have 400, uh, uh, lectures and, and one of them is, um, you know, on, on the, 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 the civil rights movement of the AME church, what it was, was was that the AME Church, based upon incidents like this, took aim at the train at the, uh, the at the trains and caused problems. Okay, we're gonna go in here and and make them throw these bishops off trains. And over the course of history, from from uh, most of its pre-Civil War, from uh, you know like eighteen twenty to, to the Civil War. There were five, six, or seven bishops who were thrown off trains, and the response was incredible. Um, uh, Bishop Payne was the founder of Wilberforce University, and he was the fourth bishop of the AME denomination, and uh, he was a 75-year-old man, and they threw him off the train. And when it got back to Wilberforce, I mean, Wilberforce University was a major uh, university during this time. I mean, the faculty and the students and everybody else went into incredible protest uh, over this. Uh, and, and it was somewhat intentional to say, hey, you know, we, we can't be doing it. And, and again, it's a case of the AME church had churches all over the country in the South. So these bishops had to put up with this, you know, uh, every day going from church to church and and in all kinds of weather and whatever and and uh um you know they they wanted you know a good accommodations for their own health and safety okay 
and 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 um, Ida B. Wells also again was thrown off a train for the same reason she wasn't going to ride in the Jim Crow car. And again, as we um, move further in history, we talk about Rosa Parks, and we know the story of Rosa Parks wouldn't get up get give up her seat. But 50 years before Rosa Parks, Ida B. Wells was picked up and thrown off a, a train. Yeah, I think that's sort of um, cracking the code, too, a little bit. Um, impo- the, the, the actions of mass movement sort of uh, resistance sure. uh, are extremely important. Uh, they're very difficult to organize. And what you see is whether it's the AME Church because of their network and because of, you know, they're not only their network of churches, but of academics. Um, the train's always a big one. We were talking about A. Philip Randolph before. Uh, one of the things that they were able to leverage was because they had the Pullman car porters, they were, in all, they were everywhere. They were talking to everybody, staying everywhere. It's just sort of a lesson in organizing mass movement resistance. Um, because, you know, people have done it before. It's going to take a different context. I think this this is another reason this history is so important is because you you are able to understand the context so the choices that that were made by regular people not by you know the great men of history quote unquote but by regular people and what they did and how they organized to resist some of this stuff so I think that's that's incredibly important and because that's we were talking before about sort of the community organizing and the political organizing that we do. Um, all you know, all of our, our big group here, and I think there's a huge lesson to be learned there. Sure, there there is also an incredible lesson to be learned on um, what ended Reconstruction when when. Um, oh no, this is a bad story. I hate this story. <laughs> <laughs> now we're always. I was just talking to a friend today. I saw a post online, just a random social media post. It said something like, I'm going to paraphrase it, but I think I have it pretty pretty correct. Um, it was responding to a Confederate. They did like a Confederate funeral somewhere in Alabama or Mississippi. All You know, that what they do. And the response, this post just said, you know, I, I believe that the lion's share of our country's problems are simply because we didn't uh, execute an, an, enough Confederates and plantation owners. You know, so the 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 abbreviated uh, the abbreviated Reconstruction is something that really always sticks in my craw because you know Lincoln could have had actually a radical Republican vice president turned him down Benjamin Butler, and instead after he was assassinated we got a drunken tailor from Tennessee, very bitter very bitter man. Um, so yeah, when anybody talks about the failures and the end of Reconstruction, I was like, oh, it's the, it's it's a it's a it's a real it's a real turning point in this country's history because. We did win the war. Threw everything at it. Wasn't the greatest context, you know. You understand. It's not like everything was great, um, but really, what should have happened was an occupation of the South and, and a real, you know, a real reckoning. So you know, maybe we wouldn't have. Maybe we'd be having other arguments today. <clears throat> but anyway, that's my little. That's my little side commentary. There was an occupation of the South, but the election of 1876 was a tie. And and in order to resolve the tie, they said, "Well, this guy can become president, and you can get the federal troops out of the South." And and 
that changed the course of history. There was no one to defend the rights of blacks uh, after the Civil War, uh, and and um, and and you know, and this is something again I never learned. This comes from from my research. We we say well. Who were the the folks that terrorized black folks in the South? Well, of course it was the Ku Klux Klan. Said no, no, it was the Red Shirts. The Red Shirts were a military arm of the Democratic Party, and they used to go to the Republican meetings, the party of Lincoln, and say, "Okay, half the meeting is yours, half the meeting is ours, and if you don't want it that way, then all the meeting is ours." And literally through intimidation and riots and everything else, they chased the party of Lincoln, the Republican Party, out of the South for 80 years from, you know, literally, um, and, you know, 1900 through, through uh, 60, 65, something like that. Uh, the, the Dixiecrats or the Democrats, they were Southern Democrats, whatever they were, were the only party in the South. And black folks couldn't join the party, couldn't put up candidates, couldn't vote, okay? And until LBJ, God bless LBJ, came along. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, people had, that's that's an interesting thing, and people don't understand that either. And, and you know, I think the the rebellion that was put down in Cincinnati is one example, but there are examples in, in after Reconstruction, too, because, you know, Grant, U.S. Grant, you know, peace be upon him, he he did he did deal with the Ku Klux Klan during the occupy during the federal occupation, so when years later then when when we have Reconstruction end in 1876, uh, and the federal troops come out, the Klan has been def- the first wave of the Klan that wave was defeated. So the thing that was the the it was the political apparatus in South Carolina that cooed or was it Virginia or South Carolina? They literally did a coup. You know, there was a there was a diverse uh, Republican Party, a Workers Party, um, that you know took control of some of these state houses. And as soon as the troops left, they just they just the the the, the white planters and, and aristocrats did did just did a coup. And I think people don't um, you know they they don't want to they want to say as you as you said they want to say well that was the Klan you know that's that's radical we don't you know we don't deal with that well no the the political apparatus. The status quo politicians ran this operation. Uh, it's the, the, I think, like you said, the history is very clear on that. There was a guy, as we talk about this, there, there is always a movement and a guy, okay? Um, in, in this um, shutting down Reconstruction, there was a guy by the name of Ben Pitchfork Tillman. And you said, what was his name again? His name was Pitchfork. I mean, and you give nicknames to people, and some people earn their nicknames. And and this guy, his name was Pitchfork. He used to come to the North, okay, and he used to give a speech. And his speech was the Negro problem from the Southern point of view. What is interesting, you know, I, I uh, lecture at, mainly I lecture now at the Hocassin Library because I, I do it on Zoom. Uh, I got a uh, call from the head librarian up there and said, uh, we're, we're looking at this lecture in April on Pitchfork. Uh, somebody Pitchfork, and it's something about 
the Negro problem in the Southern point. It, uh, are you serious? I said, this is history. I said, this, you know, I didn't make this guy up. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, what am hey, I supposed to do here? You know, I, I didn't make this guy up. She said, well, can you, like, tell me something? I said, well, the guy was governor of South Carolina and senator from South Carolina, and he was trying to convince the northerners that the southerners were not going to tolerate being being governed by black people. And he gave South Carolina and Mississippi as examples where black folks outnumbered, you know, uh, uh, white folks in, in South Carolina and, and, and Mississippi. And he said to the northerners, he said, uh, you know, you can run your states any way you want, but, you know, we're not going to be uh, governed by by black folks. So, um, you know, forget it. And and obviously this was not only was it controversial with this librarian at the time who said, you know, should we be telling this story? As, yes. you know, sure. <laughs> you know. I mean, there is there's there's a few there's a few buzzwords that I can understand why the librarian would have been piqued a little bit, like what's happening here. But yes, this is exactly the kind of story. Yeah, say. he went into Pittsburgh with twenty three bodyguards. That's that's even back then. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and 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 he was the the messenger of, of saying we're taking away the right to vote from, and again this. Some of this was before women even had the right to vote, before 1920. Uh, we're taking away the right to vote. We cannot give blacks the right to vote. And and he was one of the folks who helped give Woodrow Wilson a bad name. Woodrow Wilson got a bad name for being a Southern sympathizer and a racist and whatever. He had some guys from Mississippi and South Carolina, Alabama, who were pushing him and saying, you know, Washington D.C. you know doesn't look like uh, South Carolina, so I don't feel comfortable in Washington. Uh, Pittsburgh Ben Tillman was once on a trolley car, okay, uh, and obviously on trolley cars or whatever in South Carolina, the black folks were in the black, but there was this drunken black guy, okay, who was uh, who was. Uh, on a trolley car in Washington, D.C., and creating a disturbance. Pittsburgh Ben Tillman pulled out his gun and shot, and he missed the guy, but he shot a white guy who was waiting for the trolley car outside the trolley car. <laughs> okay. He, he, he was arrested, uh, uh, which was unusual, but he went on trial, and they said not guilty because he didn't kill nobody. But But... You know, and, and again, there were these characters who, uh, you know, larger than life went, went again, he's comparing, you know, South Carolina to Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. was a little bit better, but he was trying to change Washington, D.C. And it, it, it again was a case of, well, if you shoot a few folks, then maybe they'll get to the back of the car. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important. This is why I think these stories are important to like, to sort of paint a picture of the actual context of what's underlying, you know, who the president is, say, or whatever. I mean, this is this is something, you know, he, he, he pulled a gun and fired it in, uh, you know, Wilson in 1920 or whatever. That's wild stuff. Um, but let, let's, let's do this. I want to wrap up like this. Um, I know 
next month is uh, a big month for, for lectures and talks. Uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that, um, as Ivan Henderson said when I spoke with him uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I agree, every month should be Black History Month, but f uh, for reasons... Well, there was a, the Black History Week and then the Black History Month. We, we know it was in February because of Lincoln and Douglas. But what is your itinerary? Where, where, where can people go uh, to hear some of these stories? Because I know they're going to be interested now in hearing what your, what your schedule is for, for Black History Month. Where will you be speaking uh, and how can people um, go check it out? I am at the Hokesson Library, the Bear Library, the Apoquitamic library and the lewis library and three out of the four of those are on zoom so folks don't have to leave uh, leave their house zoom up zoom. yeah so we'll be we'll be able to we'll be able to pull those uh links and put them on the in the show notes so people can go find it um because yeah i mean um if you liked uh, the few stories we told tonight you have 400 of them <laughs> yeah and, right. growing, and, and, gr growing. And, and growing i'm sure um so i really appreciate you coming in uh, I, I, the, the, the purpose of this is I hope this was sort of, I think I called it an initial meeting, um, because yeah, we have a lot of stuff cooking too. And, and I think we're seem to be of the same mind, uh, about what, uh, about the, the, the stories and the relevance of the context, the historical material context, we'll say, uh, of people. So yeah, I, I, I really, I'm, and and Carl's involved, and several we have several people involved, just really involved in 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 drilling down in Delaware stuff, um, because I think it you know um, we maybe because of size and other reasons we really tell ourselves some some stories. Whew. Yeah, most of them are fake. So we try <laughs> let's try to get very good. And and most and, and and so now's the time. As I said, I think we have to. We're going to have to start being a little more aggressive in 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 in, uh, in you know teaching people what's what. Um, and I think this is the approach to do it from the bottom up. Um, people who you know aren't necessarily significant. Um, you know, figures who more reflect the context who show you what the issues of the day really were, what how people lived, what they were thinking, what churches they went to, you know, all of that, how they traveled. Um, and, and again, and how they organized to, um, how they organized to resist. Absolutely. So thank you so much. Everyone. Thanks for inviting me. I've, I've had, a, had a great time. And uh, yeah, we're, expect more uh, along these lines, folks. And, and let us know if there's like particular stories you want uh, from a Delaware perspective for us to dive into, hit us up uh, on the podcast or at highlandsbunker at gmail.com and let us know if there's something you want to look into. We've been, we've been getting into it pretty deep uh, from, as, we, as I read at the beginning of the show, from not the beginning, but a beginning, you know, the settler's beginning anyway. Um, I know that there was a, uh, a academic you mentioned in one of your talks that I'm going to look up uh, Heinig, Paul Heinig. Sure. Yeah, I had Absolutely. to look that guy up because he it looks like he did a lot of work uh, with the native the native contact, which I was talking to Dale. We didn't really know where to go with that, and I think that's the guy we're going to go and read that book. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're going to go all kinds of different directions and really start telling um, the story of Delaware without mentioning, you know, uh, John Dickinson. Uh, you know what I mean? Like the real, sure. the real, the real story. So again, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Thank you know, you. we always say. Left is best. <laughs>